Nahayam, Msagamu Kolan Kabakahe Bird. Hello, you're listening to Kahe Bird, a podcast about birds, birding, and queering the big year. I'm your host, Kahe Bird. Let's get into it. So, as promised in my first episode, this episode is going to be about old white birders, specifically old white male birders. Um, and some of the problems that they bring with them to birding. Um, so as I mentioned in my first podcast, I've always, always, always been really into birds. I, um, you know, eat, sleep, drink, dream, whatever, um, birds and have for my entire life. Um, and when I was a kid, my dad, one of the people he worked with, um, when he was out, out contracting, uh, was a gentleman that did a lot of bird work for the forest service and also did some bird banding for the Institute for bird populations, both as part of his forest service job. And then after he retired and he, uh, really encouraged my parents to encourage my interest in and love for birds. And so by the time I was in high school and driving myself places, um, this gentleman and my parents convinced me that I should go on a bird walk with the local um, Audubon Society. And I, to this point, was self-taught. You know, I knew the birds that I had worked with in wildlife, wildlife rehabilitation, and I knew how to identify birds that nested on my parents' property or that I saw when I was out hiking on the mountain near their house and things like that. But um I didn't own binoculars. I didn't know how to bird by ear. And so birds that don't come to feeders or birds that um, tend to stay up higher in trees, I definitely did not know how to identify. Um, so I went on this bird walk and I had a miserable time. There was a gentleman, one gentleman in particular, an older white male birder who gave me a really hard time for not knowing what a yellow warbler was. I understand as an adult, yellow warblers are pretty common. Um, if you spend a lot of time birding, you've probably run into a yellow warbler, especially in the forests where I grew up. Um, but like I said, I didn't own binoculars, so don't know when I would have seen a yellow warbler at my parents' feeder. Anyway, um, he was such a jerk that I was like, oh, I think I don't like birders and I must not be a birder because I think this guy is horrible. Um, and I avoided birding with other people for a really long time after that. In fact, I wouldn't even take people I was dating birding, not only because they weren't into birds, but because I just had such a miserable experience interacting with other people around birds that I was like, no. I'm going to do this on my own because I love them and I'm only out looking at them because I love them and I'm not going to deal with this drama. And um, in fact, I was so put off by birding. I didn't even travel to see birds until I was working on my master's and it was winter break and my friend who was in my cohort and I just needed to get out of town. And we were in Ashland 
and there had been a snowy owl hanging out in the Lamma Valley for a long time at this point. I mean, it had been there for like a month and a half or something by the time we got to break. And so we decided to go to the Willamette Valley because we wanted to see the snowy owl. Um, and it had stuck around for so long that we were like, well, it'd be silly to not choose the Willamette Valley as our place to travel together um, on our winter break. So we went and we saw the snowy owl. It was great. I had a ton of fun. And that experience um, gave me a new perspective on the idea of birding with other people. I still had a lot of weird experiences with other people after that, but in general, I, I don't know, maybe I just became more comfortable with myself. I, who knows? But, you know, I started enjoying taking people birding and leading bird walks and whatnot. So fast forward to, um, living out in, in the high desert and I, um, have largely still avoided birding groups. I have met a handful of birders through my work that I really, really like as people. I really appreciate their way of being in the world and um, had decided that maybe it was worth joining some of these other like social media groups and things like that. And so part of Birding Oregon, part of Pacific Northwest Birders, both groups have a ton of issues. West Coast Birders is definitely my preferred birding group because people there are socially aware and believe in social and environmental justice. And that's a, to me, that's a more um, fun and interesting way to interact with birds and birders. Um, anyway, I can't handle all the people, especially new photographers and birders in these social media groups that are being unethical with the way that they interact with birds. And when you try to say, hey, that's unethical, a ton of these people are like, it's fine. Birds are fine. No, they're actually not fine. And we should care and respect them enough to not harass them. Um, so whatever, feel a lot of frustration in those groups. And then I, um, many birders have, have told me I should join the WhatsApp and some of the birding groups in WhatsApp. And so I made the decision to do so. And I, I don't know, I have never joined groups in WhatsApp before. I don't even know where you find like the rules that say you can't talk about ethical birding. Um, but I joined one of the birding groups in Oregon and the very first message I got was a guy talking about how to get to a sage grouse lack and then people responding to him and being like, uh, you know, whatever, I can't wait, blah, blah, blah. And so I was like, hey, I think we all, like, I feel a little bit weird about us just sharing lek locations because there's a lot of evidence that overvisitation by photographers and birders at leks is, um, contributes to lek decline and to lek collapses. And I was told I was chastising and I was like, I'm not chastising anybody. I think we all need reminders sometimes. Uh, I was then told by the same old white birder that I was lecturing people um, and chastising them multiple times, even though I was like, that's definitely not what's happening as a biologist, as a person in the world that cares about these birds. 
I think we should all be responsible. Um, and I also included the fact that, you know, new birders don't always know how to be ethical and that I think it's important that they know. Then this old white man said, maybe you need to be reminded of the rules of this group. Of course, I then responded rather snarkily, uh, nope, don't need to be reminded. Thanks. Have a nice day. And promptly left the group because if that's not the place, if a place where people are sharing LEC information and people are planning to visit the LEX, if that's not the place to remind people of how to be respectful of sage grouse, where is the right place? Apparently not any of the birding groups on Facebook. Apparently not this WhatsApp group. So where do we have those conversations? Where do new birders see how to be ethical if all they see is old white men jumping on queer two-spirit people who are younger for asking people to be respectful? It's the same as these conversations about racism and birding. It's the same as the conversations about misogyny and anti-LGBTQ rhetoric in birding. Birders don't want to be faced with these things that are inherently part of birding. Old white men are given all the glory all the time for... Um, you know, whatever, having long lists of birds, because seeing a bunch of birds, even if you're not doing anything to protect them, apparently shows your virility. I don't know. I cannot abide all of these white men in birding that are like, this is not the place to talk about racism. This is not the place to talk about sexism. This is not the place to talk about how to respect birds? Well, I disagree. I disagree that every birding group shouldn't regularly be having conversations, especially with new people, about how not to harass birds at their nests, about how not to harass birds while they're copulating. Peregrine falcons are a pretty sensitive bird. They don't like to be disturbed. Seven million birders, that was an exaggeration, it's not seven million, going and photographing them copulating at some point could cause them not to nest. That's a thing. We have a lot of science that shows that. People going and harassing golden eagles at their nests could cause them to abandon them. We know that's a thing. We have a lot of evidence of that. No one person's need to see peregrines doing it or golden eagles tending their nest should be prioritized over those individual beings' comfort. I realize that a lot of people don't agree with me that birds have sovereignty and that birds have the right to be like, no, I'm not interested in this. If we believe, well, whatever, I believe that birds have the right to not be harassed. I believe that birds have the right to be sovereign and make decisions. And if they decide, you know, <laughs> to go lek in um, a place that is visible by people, that doesn't mean they want people coming and harassing them. In fact, the fact that they leave the lek 
probably indicates that they didn't want people watching. And I know, I mean, I've done luck surveys. I've helped radio tag sage grouse. I know how cool they are. There's almost nothing more spectacular than the sound of multiple male sage grouse inflating and deflating their air sacs and making that plopping noise. It almost sounds like rain when a bunch of them are going off at the same time. It's beautiful and sacred. And there are ways to observe sage grouse while they are lecking that is responsible. There are tons of cameras on Lex now, so people can actually watch that online. There are private ranch lands that have Lex on them that will do tours for small groups of people. Publicizing Lex information is something we should all hesitate before doing because it, social media and the pandemic, what it has shown me is that if you tell people this cool place exists, this cool bird exists, this cool thing is happening in this place, it's not gonna be just two or three people that go. It's gonna be 50 or 100 people that go. And they're gonna be people that don't know how to be ethical. They're gonna be people that don't know how to be responsible. All I have seen, even from supposedly well-versed, supposedly responsible ethical birders, in my time out here in Eastern Oregon, is that their need to see a bird supersedes the bird. And, it, and, and I, you know, I'm making a generalization. My experience in Oregon is that there are a lot of white birders. I have also met BIPOC birders that are super colonial in the way that they talk about birds and birding. So, you know, I obviously white supremacy and racism is a huge problem, but really the colonial nature of birding is the problem. Colonization says people supersede land. Colonization says people supersede birds and that birds are dumb and, you know, not sovereign beings, that they are ruled by their biology. That is a colonial thing to say. Lots and lots of indigenous people around the world, including in parts of Europe, don't have that relationship with nature. They don't see nature as something that is like, super low down in the hierarchy and people at the top and we get to dominate everything. Um, and I just think that if we can introduce some concepts that have to do with like reciprocity and sovereignty, you know, these birds have lives. If you harass them to the point they die, you are taking a life. And it's not, it's not like, oh, you know, whatever. Um, some common bird, an American goldfinch. Oh, I harassed that American goldfinch because I got too close to it and its nest failed. The population is going to cease to exist. No, that's not, the, that's not the point. The point is you as a human being harass that bird until its nest failed. It expended a lot of energy doing the thing that it's doing, that it chose to do where you could see it. You have a responsibility to not harass them until their nest fails or whatever. Ranting. Ranting. And I know when I rant, sometimes I get a tone that a lot of people don't like. So I'm going to acknowledge here and now that this uh, episode may have a tone. Um, and that's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, I, I want us to find a way to create 
and, and the word decolonized is overused and misused a ton. So I'm not, I don't really want to say decolonized, unsettled. I want us to create unsettled, so that's unsettler mindset, um, ways of interacting with nature. Indigenous people need to decolonize. Settlers and colonizers need to unsettle their relationship with nature because if I say all white people, then I'm falling into that trap that so many people fall into where I'm like, oh, Sami people don't exist. Well, the Sami do exist and they're indigenous and their land is being constantly colonized by other white people all the time. So we've got to include other perspectives in birding. We've got to understand that there are other ways of being in birding. And we have to stop letting old white men dictate what we're allowed to do and what we're allowed to talk about. You know, uh, I am a two-spirit, queer, neurodiverse human in the world. And my perspective and my concern for birds isn't something that people should just constantly dismiss. My concern for how we treat BIPOC birders, my concern for how we treat birds Nobody wants to have those conversations, and we have to have them. We have to have them. All right. This is a long enough rant. Let's go birding. A little bit of a warning for you all. Um, This audio of uh, me birding at Malheur National Wildlife Refuge headquarters. Um, there are some moments of distraction that I will not be cutting from the um, audio in part because that's just how my brain works and in part because it's a lot of effort to find and cut all of the times that, you know, Elise Chipmunk ran in front of me mid-sentence and I got distracted by it. So, Let's go birding. <laughs> Indigenous people need to decolonize. I'm at Malheur National Wildlife Refuge headquarters today. And this it's the right time of year for this really fun mixing that sometimes happens out here where you have some birds, like white crowned sparrow, for example, that are in pretty large numbers still because they're, they winter here. And then we've got the ducks and the swans who mostly are here late winter, early spring. So it's part of their migratory path. Um, and then we also have birds that are arriving like yellow-headed blackbirds weren't here at headquarters last week, but there are quite a few of them here today. Uh, there are a ton of tree swallows and singing marsh wrens. I just, um, yeah, it's a really fun, fun thing that's happening um, because it's just that time of year. Um, I'm gonna go down into the blind, see what we can see. Ooh, so many ruddy ducks. Cool male ruddy ducks that are in there funny intermediate plumage. So the northern shoveler are 
doing their fun cordy thing where they swim in pairs with their heads together and they swim in circles kind of like they're dancing and it's just so beautiful and wonderful it's marsh run and there's a marsh run and a song sparrow that are maybe fighting over a nesting spot which I don't think I've ever seen before but the song sparrow is clearly annoyed by this marsh run anyway so all the all the shovelers are out here dancing together um, and it's really funny because they're foraging in the mud so their faces are like a weird brownish red color when they pull them out of the water. There's a flock of Dunlin here. They've been here kind of increasing in number um, pretty steadily um, but they've been here for a while now. They arrived earlier than they normally arrive and um, it's fun because normally out here we don't get to see them go through their, you know, their molt where their, their bellies get blacker and blacker. And it's pretty fun to watch their bellies um, transitioning from white to black, you know, getting to see the, them in their intermediate plumage before they move on. It's pretty, pretty great. Um, man, there's so many teal out here now. So the coot are all swimming toward me right now. It's pretty funny. Um, one of my very favorite things out, out here, especially because the way the sky and the sunlight are, is when the sun hits the green winged teal's heads and gives them, like, lights up their eye makeup. Um, they're just so pretty. So it's really fun. All the roosting birds, you can see their really beautiful, beautiful green of their scapular. Or scapular? The beautiful green of their speculum. Um, just, I think green winged teal are just the most lovely little ducks. Earlier this morning, before I decided to start recording. There was a blueing teal northern shoveler hybrid, which um, it's funny, I think of mallards as hybridizing with a lot of things, but I don't often think of teal hybridizing with, with um, other birds. Anyway, he was so pretty. He had the blue, that like slate blue head-ish of a blueing teal but with the white crescent, oh, Wilson snipe, be cutie, um, with the crescent of the, the blue wing teal and, but had like rusty sides, like a shoveler. And it's funny because, you know, green wing teal, green wing teal are the smallest teal. So that's what we're talking about. We're talking about blue wing teal. Um, so I never realized how similar in size teal and shoveler were until banding ducks and like having a shoveler in your hand they're just shoveler might be the coolest ducks they're like pretty small even though they don't look that small when they're far away and their bills are like the coolest damn things ever and they're just wonderful um but it's funny because you know i think of shoveler being like more like a mallard than a teal but in reality it kind of isn't as weird of a pairing, blueing teal, northern shoveler, as um, I initially thought when I saw the bird. Because really, shoveler are more similar in size to teal, and blueing teal have kind of spoony bills, although cinnamon teal's bills are more spoony. And so, you know, yeah, maybe it's not that weird <laughs> of a mix. Um, anyway, I actually think he might be back 
but hiding in this other flock of shoveler. Anyway, shoveler are cool. They spend the winter in these big groups, swimming in circles while they're foraging, which I think is like a stirs up nutrients or something. I could probably find a paper about it or something, but watching them forage in these huge circles, swimming almost like they're, you know, caught in a whirlpool or something is, is such a cool thing in the winter. And then to watch them transition from these like kind of large foraging groups, spinning in circles to spinning in circles with their, their mate as some sort of like pair bonding thing is just cool. And I really love that it looks like they're dancing with each other. Um, I think a lot of birds, more birds than we think, seem like they're dancing than, um, than I think we normally, like, I, I don't know. Cranes dance because they feel joy. Maybe these shoveler are just dancing because it's like, feels good. This spinny, dancey, foragey thing they're doing. I don't know. I think more birds do more things because they feel good than we give them credit for. Shoveler are just, they're so wonderful. Anyway. And the buffleheads too. You know, buffalehead, I, when the sun hits them just right, they're kind of like the teal, like the green on a teal's face. I mean, it's green. It's not like, it's not visible all the time, but wow, when the sun hits it, it's like, wow, green. Um, and I feel like that's one of my favorite things about the buffalehead too. You know, you watch these little male buffleheads swimming around and then the sun hits their head just right and it just transforms from black to like disco party. And they're so beautiful and so wonderful and they're probably the punk rock birds of the duck duck world so i think bufflehead might be um anyway all right we're gonna walk up toward all these red-winged blackbird singing in the trees and see if we can get a better recording of them um so many double crested cormorant flying over right now heading probably toward the rookery what day is this april 2nd yeah probably getting ready to start nesting. That's the other fun thing about being out here is you just have so many stages of nesting birds. Like the, it's one of the coolest things about being out here is, you know, the owl babies are gonna be hatching now and then we'll have owl or uh, hawk baby, red to hawk babies pretty soon. And then all these, like the Says Phoebe babies will be coming along cause they're starting to scope out nesting territory. And then, we get all the other babies just getting to watch the transition of uh, new life over time is just it's fun oh i love that there are only like two yellow-headed blackbird in that flock of red-winged blackbirds and their the white patches on their wings just like really stood out because of the because of the fact that they were the only few in the flock it's pretty cool there's not very many woodpecker species that nest here, uh, now here, but um, during migration we tend to get quite a few through. And a uh, red nape sapsucker just flew into one of these pines near the nature store headquarters, and oh my gosh, <laughs> um, a, one of the building's ground squirrels just ran by with like its cheek pouches packed full of grass which seems late for birthing but maybe they're i don't know doing what with it going underground to eat um anyway the uh, red nape sapsucker just flew into this tree and 
they they're just so pretty <laughs> bush tits um the bush tits i don't know they're not in large flocks right now and i'm pretty sure that they're trying to pick places to nest but these bush tits just got really annoyed at the red nape sap sucker for <laughs> i don't know moving up this tree um so this morning i also there was also a downy woodpecker and lots of other flickers which you know are pretty common here um some american goldfinch and a lincoln sparrow who i really tried to get a picture of because i think they're just so pretty lincoln sparrows are beautiful beautiful sparrows um i think anyway and some ruby crown kinglets and red-tailed hawk finally sitting on her nest uh some really, really beautiful breeding plumage, male yellow wormed warblers of the Audubon's variety. Um, ah, man, in breeding season, they are just so flashy. And I'm not really going to remember what other birds I saw when I first got here today. Anxiously awaiting our first hummingbirds. The curlew arrived. This is totally not even at headquarters, but the curlew arrived in the basin. Um, apparently sometime between last like Tuesday and this Wednesday and I may or may not have shrieked with joy at seeing my first curlew. I just think curlew are so beautiful and so magical and I love them so much and every spring I can't wait for them to come back and they're back at least in the basin, not really headquarters. Oh, mountain chickadees are still here. They weren't talking this morning. Hi guys. My mountain chickadees, I love you so much. Oof, the northern flicker in the tree with the sunlight shining right on its beautiful orange feathers in a way that is like, man. Seeing them lit up with the sun hitting them just like right on the color, it's like, woo. Also a sharp shin hawk that just flew into this tree. I wonder if that's why the red-winged blackbirds flushed earlier. A little sharpie. A few years ago I found a young male sharp shin and he was so tiny. And I just love how small they are. Um, but he's eating a song sparrow and I it highlighted how small he was when I realized the song sparrow seemed like it was like half his size. Um, cute little bugger those male sharpshins all right that's gonna do it for the second episode of cache bird i am thankful for you joining me i hope my rambling was at least semi entertaining or affirming and i will talk next week not sure where we're going not 100 certain what we're talking about but it'll be an adventure Happy birding, Ashki and Sawawa, until we speak again. Bye.